0: Well, good morning to all of you. It is so good to be here with you. I have loved worshiping with you and being part of what's going on here. Chris is a dear friend and brother. He's on the Mount Rushmore of Biola grads. He's a dear friend, and I'm just so thankful I get to be a little bit part of what he is doing here. And so many people have been doing for a long time, and so I'm grateful to be here. And I love this question that's really framing your time together? What really matters? I don't know about you, but I struggle with impatience. And if I think that I am spending my time, my life on something that doesn't matter, it can be really frustrating to me. But the problem is we live in a culture that's constantly trying to get us to invest our lives in things that don't really matter. And so I want to look at this passage that is the theme passage for the whole conference that you've been having in Philippians 1. Just these three verses. But listen to what it says. It's it's on the front of your brochure, the very beginning of it. Listen to what it says. Paul prays for the Philippians, and he says, I pray your love will overflow more and more, and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters, so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. Oh, there's so much incredible, helpful wisdom and truth packed into those verses. What a beautiful prayer Paul prays for the Philippians and that we can pray for one another, that we will grow in our knowledge and understanding. That's where it all starts. You need to know who God is. You need to understand who God is to really understand what really matters. And that leads to intensely practical daily living. There's a dailiness to the Christian life that's really difficult, but wonderful as well. It's not just taking a pilgrimage and having a one-time experience. It's not just having some sort of enlightenment that happens to you one time. There's a dailiness to the Christian life we need to understand and appreciate so that we live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. That's what he says. Jesus is coming back. Like Chris was just saying, our time is short. It'll be so fast before we see Jesus. And what have we done with our lives is the question. Have we invested our lives in what really matters? And he says, be filled with the fruit of your salvation. That means a meaningful life bears fruit that comes from having been saved by Jesus. You can't have one without the other. And this righteous character, who you are and who you're becoming, is what this fruit is essentially about. And Jesus is the one who does this, and the glory of God is the goal of all of it. It's to the praise of God, bringing much glory to Him. So what really matters? What are you living your life for? If someone watched you live, watched the way you spent your days, your time, listened to you talk, saw what you really were pumped about, would they say, He is all about Jesus. She is living for Christ. Jesus is obviously everything to her. She sees everything else in light of who Jesus is and who she is in him. That's what a meaningful life looks like. So what really matters? The prophet Jeremiah tells us, he says, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom or a rich man boast of his riches or a mighty man boast of his might, but let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am a God. I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, righteousness, and justice on earth. And then he says, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Knowing and understanding God is where a meaningful life has to begin. And is grounded for our entire lives. And so... Having a relationship with this God is what it's all about. Understanding who God is is what it's all about. And I know it may be easy for you to sit there and say, well, here comes this speaker. He comes from L.A. He's a theology professor. I'm also a pastor of a church. And so he's a God guy that this is what he does for a living. You know, I I can't relate to this guy, but I want you to know, just because I may have a couple of jobs that require I say the things I'm saying to you right now, first and foremost, I'm not a theology professor, I'm a pastor. First and foremost, I'm a disciple of Jesus. My life is defined by him. As long as I can remember, I grew up in a rough town, in a rough area, in a rough family, raised by a single mom, my brother and I. My mom was not ready to raise two boys by herself. We didn't have barely any money, but my brother and I roughed it out, and it was a tough life, but I'm so glad that even though we didn't have a lot of the things you'd want a couple boys to have and a single mom to have, my mom sat my brother and me on her lap and read the Bible to us almost every day day and at some point in my life when I was a little kid I became aware that I needed a savior and Jesus was that savior and ever since I became aware of Jesus as the one who saved my life he's been everything to me and I'm so thankful I've saw I've seen where a lot of my friends ended up from where I came from and it it hasn't been a good place but Jesus saved my life and he's defined my life ever since. Jesus isn't just a really important part of our lives. He is our life. That's what the Bible says about him. He, he's not just really important. He's not a, some self help coach or personal trainer who helps you get better at what you do only. He, he's our savior. And so asking, what does this mean? And so I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm a husband. I'm a father, and I'm a part of a church family. Let me show you a little picture of some people from my church. This is a photograph of folks from my church. And I don't know, can you see that okay? There we go. Uh, These are just some folks from my church as we're praying for Ayelet, who is about in this photograph to head off to be a missionary in Israel, which is where she is right now. And we're praying for Ayelet. We're laying hands on her. This, This is my church family. And when we talk about knowing God, I am so grateful you have an amazing school like this to be part of. But you, you need to know the local church is the primary place God is working out his plan and advancing his causes. This is going to be over before you know it, your, your school experience. The local church is where you need to be now and throughout your whole life. That's the place you're going to find uh, elderly people and little kids and and construction workers and people you you wouldn't meet in a typical day of school, but that are going to help you grow. And so I love everybody in this, this photograph. But here's a picture of my family. So I'm a part of my church family, but I'm a husband to Donna for 35 years. This is my wife and my kids. Yes, I have more Asian children than most Asian people. And, and this, this is my wife of 35 years. She is amazing. She's, she's gracious and kind and funny and brilliant and patient and, and amazing. When we met in high school, I'm I, after the third custody battle, I moved in with my dad. And I went in the senior corridor of, of Valley Regional High School. And I looked across. And Donna's locker was across from mine. And I said, whoa. And I did some, some intel. I've got some intel. And I found out. That she was dating a guy, and they were serious. They were about to be class sweethearts in the yearbook. That's how serious. So I was like, all right, I don't know if this is going to happen, but we'll see. So I had to wait a year and a half for her to finally break up with John. And he had become a friend of mine by then. so out of respect to him, I waited two weeks and then I moved in. I moved in like El Nino and never looked back. And, then, and Donna's just incredible. And then we have four kids that we adopted, three from Taiwan. We're from China. Caroline, Paige, Sam, and Isaac. Isaac's with me in the back. You back there, I man. There he is. Isaac, my youngest, is with me. He's an amazing kid. But I, So I'm a dad, and I'm a husband, and I'm working this stuff out of living for what really matters every day of my life. And so it's, it's not just theory for me at all. I, I want to be a good husband and a good father who's living for what really matters and helping my wife and children, my family, live for what really matters. I want to be a good son, and I want to be a good neighbor, and I want to be a good friend. And that means I need to know God and put knowing him at the core of my life. And until you know who God is, you'll never know who you are. We live in a world where people are so confused about who they are. They think their identity comes from all of these things outside of what really matters. What really matters is who you are before God, period. You'll get all kinds of messages on social media about who you are or who you should be. You'll get all kinds of messages from people who say horrible things to you. You'll get all kinds of messages from people who try to pump your head up on superficial identity. But what really matters is who you are before God. That's all that matters. He's the one who made you in his image. More like him than anything else that is. And you have profound dignity and value and respect as someone made by God in his image and likeness. That's where your identity starts. But then we need to realize that we have forfeited anything that would come our way from God in that image in rebellion against him. We've all sinned against God. Listen to how Ephesians chapter 2 puts it. I have it here for us to look at. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. Here's the human condition. And you were dead. This is talking to, to the Ephesians, but it's talking to all human beings. You were dead. Notice it doesn't say, you just needed some more time. It doesn't say, you just need a little more advice. You, you just needed a better education. You just needed better parenting. You just you just need some some uh, fitness. Uh, no, it says you're dead. A, a dead man can't do anything to change his condition. You were dead in the trespasses and sins, the law-breaking, missing the mark of God's holiness in which you all once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirits that now is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's bad. (laughs) That's as bad as it gets. It can't get any worse than that. You can't save yourself. This is a horrible condition. You're by nature someone who's in rebellion against God. That's how we all boot up. And actually there's something comforting in that, that we're all in this together. We're all equally desperate for a savior. We all equally need God to save us from our sinful self-focused condition. And he has done that for us. We're we're as bad off as we can be, but thank God for verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our lawbreaking and our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And it is not the result of works, so that anyone might boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you hear that description of this God? Did you hear who this God is? Do you know the first lie we were ever told as humans about God? said he's cheap, it said he's stingy, that he doesn't have your best interests in mind. Think about it Genesis chapter three Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan comes along and he says, So you can't eat of the trees of the garden, huh? And Eve calls him on it, actually. He says, no, we can eat of all the trees in the garden, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, God has said he'll provide for us abundantly. We just don't take knowledge of right and wrong, good and evil, into our own hands. We leave that to him. And what what does Satan say? Mm -hmm. He's not looking out for you. You better fend for yourself. You can't trust him. He's cheap. He's not going to take care of you like you need to be taken care of. You better go get it for yourself. That's what he tells us. And so we have thought that God doesn't have our best interest in mind for all of human history. We think we can't trust God. Did you hear how incredibly lavishly generous he is? His great love with which he loved us. His immeasurable riches of His grace. You can't even measure it. This God is not cheap who made us. God made a world that's filled with beauty and goodness and delight. And He is a God who wants to provide for you a life more abundant than you could ever imagine and a life eternal with Him. That's what we're created for. That's what really matters. And unless you're living to understand and know that God and who you are in light of who you are in Christ, if that's who you are you're not living for what really matters. You can have all the things this world offers. You can have everything the world offers. But like King Solomon will tell you, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you can have everything the world offers, but if it's disconnected from God, if it's disconnected from the things of eternity, it will add up to absolutely zero, nothing. Emptiness, vanity, vanity, all is emptiness, Solomon says. Listen to a wise man who had everything and came to that conclusion. We can go seeking after the things of this world and don't realize that the things of this world will only have the blessing and meaning they're intended to when we have a relationship with the creator of it all. And so we are able to be the people of God. And if you've trusted Jesus by faith, you have nothing left to prove. If you've trusted Jesus by repentance and faith, you have nothing left to earn. And you have nothing left to demonstrate to anyone, even God, because Jesus has done everything you need for him to do. Becoming a Christian is the most freeing, life-giving thing you could ever become. And I would hate for any of you to not have this incredible life in Christ, which is what really matters. And so we've got to realize there's a radical difference between how a lot of people even perceive the Christian life and what's really the Christian life. You know, I was fascinated by Muhammad Ali. When I was a little kid is when he was in his prime in the 60s and 70s. You all know who Muhammad Ali was, right? Well, Muhammad Ali, uh, if if you just watch that man, he had more charisma than anybody I've ever seen and more confidence than anybody I've ever seen. You know what his self-given nickname was? What did he call himself? He said, I am the greatest. That's right. I am the greatest, right? And arguably, boxing-wise, he was. He died a few years ago. And I watched his funeral. You should watch his funeral. It's just, it's just amazing. And a guy who, who you would say, man, I've never seen anybody who has more confidence than Muhammad Ali. His wife got up, and she spoke about Muhammad Ali, the woman who knew him best. And do you know what she said about him? Muhammad would wake up every day. In wonder about his salvation. He would wake up every day and wonder if he had done enough to go to heaven. Do you know what it says in Muhammad Ali's tombstone? It says, service you do to others is the rent you pay for your room in heaven. Now, a lot of people would hear that and say, oh, that's cool. I like that ethic. I like that idea that that when you you serve others, you're you're paying rent in heaven. If you really understand the gospel and you hear that idea, it'll feel like a punch in the stomach. When when I heard his wife say, he'd he'd every day wake up and say, I wonder if I've done enough. I wonder if I've done enough. You know, he, he couldn't have had more confidence on the surface, but deep down, he had this realization that he, he, he never could quite do enough. What you need to know is Jesus is enough. Jesus has done everything you could ever, ever need him to do. And I promise you, if you trust Christ, you'll never be lacking in anything. And so know who you are in Christ. You are forgiven. You are righteous in God's sight. Do you know what it says in 2 Corinthians Uh, chapter five, it says that about Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, to be considered sinful and be punished and killed for that sin. That was our sin. It was put on him. He made him who knew no sin. He was sinless to be sin. He took our sin. Why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. The, the perfect righteousness of God himself is given to us in Christ. All those riches we just read about, all that forgiveness is ours in him. It's a done deal. When Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, he really meant it. The sufficiency of Christ is as sweet a thing as you'll ever think on. And it frees you from ever having to prove anything anymore. You can be free of all of that. And so in Christ, you're completely forgiven. In Christ, you're declared righteous. Not kind of righteous, not sort of righteous. The righteousness of God, it says in 1 Corinthians 5.21. The righteousness of God. And you're forgiven completely. You are forgiven of every sin that may still haunt you that maybe you did years ago. You know, I talk to men and women in their 60s and 70s and 80s, and they're haunted by their sin every day. Some of those sins they did back in high school and junior high, and it still plagues them. And we need to claim the forgiveness that we have in Christ and the righteousness. Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived for you. He lived a perfect, obedient life in place of our disobedience so that we could be declared righteous before God. And All we should hear from God is depart from me. But because of Jesus, life and death in our place and his resurrection, what we rather hear from God is come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Yet we can be plagued, even as children of God, forgetting that we're his children now, and we're forgiven, and we're righteous in his sight. Martin Luther said about the Christian Because of your faith in Jesus, a man with confidence can boast in Christ and say, mine are Christ's living, doing, speaking, suffering, and dying. Mine, as much as if I had lived, done, spoken, suffered, and died as he did. Luther says, just as a bridegroom possesses all that is his brides, and she all that is his because the two have all things in common, so Christ and the church are one spirit. All that is his is ours. The riches of Christ and his heavenly blessings become ours by faith in him. You add nothing to what he's done, nor need to. And so you're righteous in his sight, but Satan will get after you. He'll haunt you. One of his main titles is what? The accuser of the brethren. He loves to accuse us of sin. He loves to accuse us of things we've done and even accuse us of things we haven't done to make us feel shame and guilt that has been freed from us. And so we need to claim that reality. We need to recognize who we are in Christ and live that freedom out every day. And only then will we arrive at sanctification that's grounded in grace, gospel-driven sanctification, but I think if Satan gets you to believe that you're forgiven of 99% of your sins, he wins. He wins. If you think you have 1% of your sin to work off, Satan wins, we lose. And so to be freed completely from ever thinking it's even possible to work off our sin and earn our room in heaven somehow, That's every other religion of the world. Every other religion of the world is what we do to please God and gain favor with him. The Christian faith is what God has done so we can have a relationship with him. Charles Spurgeon said, I know what the devil will say to you. He'll tell you you're a sinner. Tell him you know you are. But for all that, you're justified. Spurgeon says, Satan will remind you of the greatness of your sin. And he says, tell him of the greatness of Christ's righteousness. He will remind you of all your mishaps, your backslidings, and your wanderings, and your failures, and he will remind you that your sin is great indeed. Tell him you know all that, and tell your own conscience you know all that, and that although your sin be great, Christ is quite able to put it all away. Nothing left to prove, nothing left to earn, nothing left to demonstrate, no image to project on social media so people think you're all that. You're free from that now. We don't need to be in prison to the constant image maintenance that so many of us are are burdened by every day. We can be just who God made us to be and live for him and that kind of freedom. We adopted our four kids all when they were older, eight, seven, six, and eight, and it's been an amazing journey of, of adopting kids who were orphans and now they're family. And nothing can ever change that. They are family no matter what. They're part of the Tana's family. They're, they're in the will. They have access to everything in the fridge. They have an identity now. They have a belonging. But it can still be a struggle for them, like all of us, to no longer believe we're orphans because we were orphans. Our sin had left us in a state without the father we desperately need. We'd rebelled against him. And so we can't just depend on on some platitude, some simple thing, a way of thinking. We need to go to God and say, Lord, who am I in you? My daughter, we adopted her when she was eight. And I'll never forget, she was only home about five days. And... We were going to church for the first time, and we said, honey, we'll be back in about half an hour, hour, hour and a half. She came out with her hands completely full of everything she could carry, everything. Stuffed animals, change of clothes, food, everything. As much as she could carry. And we said, honey, we're coming back in an hour and a half, you don't need all of that. And she sat in the back seat with this look that said, I know you said that, but I'm not taking any chances. I think of Caroline coming out of the house like that so many times because that's how we go through life, carrying all this stuff we don't have to. The sin, the the identity things we try to find that, that don't add up to anything. We can let it all go and be free in Christ. Let's live that way. Lord, help us to be young men and women, old men and women who walk with you in simple daily faithfulness, living for what really matters.